How many times have we gotten the thing that we have most desired in our life and then we've discovered that it's not satisfying, right? Maybe it's as you're a kid and there's some game or toy that you just got to have. And when you get it, you open it up on Christmas and you lose interest almost immediately. You realize, eh, that's really not very good. It's not, maybe it's not well made. Maybe it's not really compelling. I can think of times with my childhood. I can think of times with my kids' childhood. Or maybe it's a dream car that you saved up for and you bought it and then it managed to get wrecked in the first year. Or maybe it's a, it's a job that you're so excited about. This is going to be the one, the great, perfect job. And then within a couple of weeks, you realize this is more like a nightmare than a dream job. Or perhaps it's the house that you've, you've been longing to have all your life. And you get this house and you quickly realize that for whatever else it is, it's got a crushing financial burden. Well, whatever these things are in your life, whatever it is you've experienced, when these disappointments occur, we are often left to wonder, why? Why did this happen to me? Why was this unsatisfying, this thing that I thought was going to be so great? And that is exactly the situation that we see in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. You see, the small remnant of Israel has has gotten the thing they most wanted. After 70 years of forced exile in Babylon, they have come home. They have come home to the ruins of Jerusalem, and they have begun rebuilding it. They have rebuilt the temple of God. They have gotten what they dreamed about for 70 years. And yet, it's not glorious like they expected it to be. They are a trivial backwater Persian province. Nobody cares about them. They have very little true autonomy. Their new temple is actually kind of lame. They are dirt poor. They are frequently hungry, and they cry out, where is all that awesome stuff God promised? Does that sound like anything we've ever cried out to God? Where's that awesome stuff that I thought you promised? Well, amidst those questions and doubts and angry accusations at God, the prophet Malachi was sent to explain things. And he did it through a series of six debates between God and the people of Israel. It's an, it's an interesting format. And these were to be the last words that God would speak to the nation of Israel for about 500 years until John the Baptist and Jesus arrived. And you might be asking yourself, why are we going to be doing a series in the Old Testament? Because we're going to be looking at Malachi from now till the end of October when we are people bound by the new covenant through Jesus Christ. Now, I have lots of reasons why I like the Old Testament, but I'm going to give two that I think are are very applicable to where we are today, what we're going to talk about today, and in general. One is that Jesus said that he explicitly came to fulfill and complete the requirements of the Old Testament. So for us to fully understand his mission, to fully understand him, we need to be people who 
understand the Old Testament. And the other is that the Old Testament, I feel, beautifully reveals the heart of God. It's in the Old Testament, in Exodus 34, that God proclaims His most holy name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, God is a God of mercy and grace and faithfulness and steadfast love that never gives up and patience that can endure all things. And he demonstrates it over and over again in the pages of the Old Testament. And so we're going to begin our series in Malachi today. We're going to look at Malachi chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 6 and the rest of the chapter. And this is really the second debate. If we had an extra week between now and the end of October, I'd cover the first debate. I'll, I'll summarize it briefly. The people are like, God, you don't love us. God says, I do love you. They're like, really, we don't think so, because things are so miserable here. And God says, you should see the other guy. You should see what I do to countries I don't love. But today we're in the second great debate. I've split it over two slides because it's a a longish passage, so you probably should follow in your own Bible if you've got one. Um, I did manage to transition the slide at the right place in the first service, but I do not guarantee your money back. God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us? With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For not my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. In this passage, God is bringing the charge specifically against the priests, but really it's against all the people of Israel, that they have despised his name by bringing pathetic 
defective and unlawful offerings to him. Sacrifices that are completely unacceptable, and yet at the same time, they deny there's a problem. And so from this passage, I want to focus on three key takeaways this morning. The first is that Malachi has extremely bad news for Israel. Their so-called sacrifices have insulted God. God had chosen the people of Israel to be his special people for blessing the whole world, for making his name famous to the ends of the earth. But because they were human beings, God also knew that they were going to inevitably wind up sinning. They were no different than we are. And because he was pure and holy and just, he could not live amongst sinful people without destroying them. That's just what was going to happen. So God gave them a way to receive forgiveness for their sins through sacrificing animals. Leviticus 17.11 explains that the blood of these animals was to make atonement for their sins. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And only the most perfect male animals were acceptable to offer as a sacrifice to the great and holy and perfect almighty God of the universe. And God reveals the enormity of Israel's sin, beginning in verse 6, by reminding them he deserves the best. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? God asked them two questions about how they relate to him. He has loved Israel for centuries like a father. He has raised them up. He has multiplied them. He has freed them from slavery. He has protected them, chosen them, given them a purpose, led them, fought for them, and lived with them. And so they should honor him as a father. But they don't. And then he points out he is also their master. He is the creator of the universe. So even if they can't manage to love him as a father, they should at least fear him as the all-powerful king of kings. And I always want to be clear when I use the word fear. Right, because it's come to mean something different in English than it used to mean. Right, it doesn't refer to just standing and quaking in your boots, paralyzed before God. It describes reverence for God, standing in awe of God, His amazing power and being. And so for the purposes of clarity for the rest of this morning, I'm going to use the word respect. That's maybe a little easier for us in English to understand than fear. It has some different connotations for us. And these two words, honor and respect, are at the heart of Israel's failure. Because Israel's sacrifices were offensive in two ways. Their quality, which was dishonoring, and their attitude, which was disrespectful. The bad quality of Israel's sacrifices dishonored God. In fact, they treated God with such contempt that they despised him. You see, when the Bible talks in verse 6 about despising God's name, there is no difference between his name 
and his qualities, his essence, or his being. So to despise the name of God is to despise God. It is to despise everything about him. It is to show contempt for everything about him. And verse 8 explains it. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? See, these animals, as I mentioned before, that are supposed to be sacrificed, they're supposed to be perfect. Right? They're supposed to be genuinely representing a cost to their owner, something that they're sorry to give up because this is their prized animal. It reflects the depths of their sorrow for their sin, the fact that they're really sorry that it happened. But in Israel, the people were routinely bringing animals that were clearly defective, that they clearly didn't care to get rid of. It was probably an advantage to them to get rid of. They're bringing animals that were blind, lame, sick, or stolen. And then the priests who were supposed to be guarding the integrity of the temple, the integrity of God's reputation, are saying, yep, that's great, bring it on in. It's all good. They were letting it happen. And God is so offended by this that he contrasts his chosen people of Israel with the Gentiles, the outsiders, the foreigners, everyone around the world, who would one day rightly honor God. He says in verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, but apparently not so amongst his own chosen people. Clearly they weren't even bringing their own animals sometimes, because verse 13 says, You bring what's been taken by violence. They're stealing the animals. That's not a sacrifice. And then he asks, shall I accept this from your hand? And the answer is clearly no. You see, God is not obligated to accept any old offering they brought. He was interested in the best. And worse than the quality of their sacrifices was the attitude. You can feel his anger boiling out. Because like so many in today's world, These priests seem to think that God is so distant, so out of touch, so stupid, so unlikely to do anything about their sin that they could just go ahead and declare what was evil to be good. Does that sound familiar? There are churches and pastors today who are willing to say that what is evil is is good, just to please some folks. They think they can get away with this. But in verse 12, God says, they profane his holy name when they do this. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised, it's okay. And then despite having the enormous privilege of serving in the temple of the living God, of representing him to the people and interceding for their forgiveness, for their sins. What greater job could there be? But they've become so jaded and cynical about their work that God says in verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it. Their terrible attitudes disrespected the all-powerful creator of the universe. 
and they didn't seem to think he was going to care. But God is emphatic in verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, meaning I need something out of God, so I'm going to offer to give him this very best animal. And yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. So once he gets the thing from God he wants, this person then just substitutes it with one of these defective offerings. Cursed be the cheat. This is a terrible, terrible set of news and indictments for the people of Israel. While this passage presents nothing but bad news for the people of Israel, it points us towards extremely good news for us. Because unlike all those defective sacrifices, Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice. We need to understand that the Old Testament sacrificial system was intended to point us to the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Every animal sacrifice could only cover a limited amount of sin. And so despite slaughtering thousands and thousands, probably millions over the centuries of animals, the people of Israel just kept piling up more sin, just like we do today. Those animals couldn't really save them, and God always knew that. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrifice of innocent animals who had no idea what was coming, had no idea that they were even going to die, had no idea why they were dying, that cannot deal with the intentional sin that every human being has committed since Adam. The sacrifices were there to help us understand the terrible price of sin. That as Paul says, the wages of sin is death. That's why those animals had to die. And to illustrate to us the need for a very different kind of sacrifice, the one true, perfect, infinite sacrifice that really can cover all our sins, the sacrifice of the eternal and holy Son of God, Jesus Christ. In going to the cross, Jesus chose to take the sin of the world upon himself. Those animals chose nothing. Jesus chose to carry our sin. He chose to go to the cross so that his blood could cover our sins, yours and mine. He chose to go to the cross so that we would not have to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay for what we've done, but so that instead we could have eternal life through faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. And Christ's resurrection is the proof that this sacrifice was accepted by God, that it was enough. When he appeared to so many witnesses, it proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was who he said he was, that he could do the things that he said he could do, that his sacrifice had indeed brought victory over the power of sin and death. And so our certain hope of eternal life through faith in Christ is set on this foundation of his perfect sacrifice and resurrection. And because his sacrifice is perfect, there is no further need for animal sacrifices ever, which is a huge relief. I don't like to get messy. And, you know, it keeps the pets safe. 
as the writer of Hebrews says, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Right? That's anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, perfected for all time in the eyes of God. Don't ever lose track of that. To underscore this truth, recall God's lament in verse 10 of today's passage. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors of the temple. Right? He is so offended by the sacrifices, he wished someone had the courage to shut the temple down so that people would stop making these offensive sacrifices to him. And nobody did. And so God used the Romans in A.D. 70 to shut the doors forever by destroying the temple. Why would God destroy his temple? Because the perfect sacrifice had already been made. There was no more need for sacrifices. And God now dwells in each person who accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We are the temple of God now, each one of us who believes. The third takeaway from this passage is simply this. God cares deeply about our sacrifices. So how are you treating God with your sacrifices? How am I doing? Now, wait a minute. Didn't I just say Jesus was the perfect sacrifice and we don't need to worry about bringing our blind and lame animals to the altar? Yes, I did. But just because animal sacrifices went away doesn't mean that we are not commanded to offer sacrifices as believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, we are commanded to make one specific and extraordinary sacrifice ourselves. I love the way Paul phrases it in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, we are to offer ourselves to the Lord. Every aspect of our lives we are to hold up before him, holy and completely. To sacrifice, to serve as living sacrifices, meaning we don't expect to die right now for it. Living sacrifices, meaning continuous, every aspect of every day. To glorify him with every step we take, every conversation we have, every choice we make. And I want to be crystal clear. The Israelites made sacrifices so that their sins would be forgiven. We don't have to do that. Jesus did that for us. We are commanded to sacrifice ourselves because we've been forgiven. We sacrifice out of the gratitude of hearts that have been transformed by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we must ask ourselves, each one of us, what kind of sacrifice am I? Does my sacrifice honor and respect the Lord? Or am I despising his name by living as a limited, token, lame, or grudging sacrifice? 
We should look at this question the way Malachi did, the way God did in Malachi, rather, in terms of honor and respect, quality and attitude. So with regard to the quality of our, your sacrifice, you're here this morning. We're all here this morning, so bonus for us, right? That's a good sacrifice, and it is. It is. But our call is to total sacrifice. If you think about all those little lambs in the Old Testament getting sacrificed, they weren't just getting their wool sheared off or a little, little bit taken off the tail. It was a total sacrifice. And that's what we are called to. So it's good that we are here this morning, but where are we? What are we doing the other six days of the week? What is our sacrifice when we are at work, when we are at school, when we're in the car, when we're in the store, when we're on the golf course, or when we're on vacation? Are we a living sacrifice in those cases? Think about the way you use your time. There is absolutely no more precious thing in Northern Virginia than your time, right? Almost everyone here would trade a pile of money for more time. So if that's our most precious thing, then how we use our time more clearly speaks to our actual priorities than anything else. So what do you spend your time on? Because no matter what you think and tell yourself, how you spend your time is what your priority is. Are you using your gifts and abilities and experiences for God to grow his kingdom right here in Lake Ridge and to the ends of the earth? Or are you mostly benefiting from the sacrifices of others as a consumer? Each of us is called to help make disciples, to invite friends, to share the reasons we have for our joy, to pray, 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 to give to God's kingdom, to work, to improve the community around us, to get out of our chairs and to reach out to those who are farthest from God and share with them his love and his truth. That's the sacrifice we're called to make. So how is the quality of your sacrifice? Is it the kind of sacrifice that honors the God who loves you so much that he sacrificed his own son for you? Now, verse 8, God asks a very convicting question, and I'm going to give a little bit of a paraphrase. It's the one that speaks to me, right? And anybody who's kind of career-ish around here, there's a lot of that in Northern Virginia. He basically asks, is that the kind of sacrifice you would give your boss? Right? He asks about, would you give that to the governor? Would you give that to your boss? If you care about your job, is that the level of effort and the kind of effort you would give your boss? And if not, why do you think it's okay to give that to the author of life? And then if you say, the quality of my sacrifice is good. I am doing a lot of things for God. And many of you are. Many of you are. And the second question from today's passage is, how's your attitude? Now, I will say that's one I have battled in years past. I certainly have not for the past year because I love what you guys let me do here. 
But this can be an area that's very problematic for faithful serving Christians who are here day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, doing different things for the church. And the question is, when you do the work of ministry, is it a joy to be working for the Lord? Do you look forward to it? Or do you find that you're pitying yourself for having to teach those kids one more week? Get up there and sing one more week. Get up there and play an instrument one more week. One more week as deacon of the week. Do you find that you're hoping to get lots of compliments and praise or or you're just exhausted and you don't really care and you just want to bang it out and hope that it's good enough and nobody will notice that you're phoning it in this week? And on the one hand, if your attitude is of grudging acceptance and just grim duty, you're missing the gratitude towards your loving father. And if, on the other hand, the attitude is just get the work done in whatever minimal fashion you can, you're missing the reverence for the creator, right? Honor and respect, the father and the master, quality and attitude. So how do we correct our attitude when it's a problem? Well, I do firmly believe sometimes you just have to power through. Sometimes that's actually a test. Like when you're just kind of dragging and it's hard, sometimes that's just a test. It's about discipline. It's about perseverance. It's about the enemy trying to say, hey, you shouldn't want to do this anymore. Hey, it's, it's cold. You don't really want to go out and teach kids on Wednesday night or something like that. And you have to power through it. But sometimes, or maybe even often, it is helpful on a regular basis to ask God to reveal our true motives for being involved in that ministry. Why are we doing it in the first place? Is it to serve Him, or is it something lesser? More often, we need to work to improve our relationship with God. Because we can get so busy doing things for God that we forget to cultivate our relationship with God. And nothing turns our ministry into drudgery faster than disconnecting it from the God who is being glorified by the work. So I do encourage everyone, spend time in the Word every day. Spend time in prayer, talking to God every day. That is what refreshes and empowers and cultivates that relationship. And then if you find that your attitudes towards a particular ministry are still not changing, even as you have cultivated your relationship with the Holy Spirit, even though you say you've got the right motives, it's just not working for you, then it might be time to consider something different. That what you were called to do two or three years ago is not what you're called to do at the moment. These things can change. Because you sign up to work in a ministry now does not mean you've made a commitment for the rest of your life to work in the nursery. Right? or to teach Sunday school, or any other valuable and important ministries. So in that situation, once you find a graceful way to kind of transition responsibilities, find a different area of ministry to which you are drawn or called or invited, and where you see, yes, I can do this ministry with an attitude that does honor and respect the Lord, that does bring Him glory, not just by what I do, but how I do it and why I do it. Because if there's one thing we can see from Malachi's message, our attitude behind doing it matters immensely to the Lord. And it should matter a lot to us, too. It is about our spiritual development and growth. So as we close this morning, we can see that on the one hand, 
Everything is completely different for us from the way it was for those Israelites. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are a redeemed person and you should enjoy the benefits and blessings of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, it doesn't change the fact that once again, as usual, Jesus has raised the standard. And now, instead of sacrificing a few animals, we are called to sacrifice ourselves for the kingdom of God. So are you a living sacrifice that honors Jesus Christ? And does your attitude respect the God who called you to him? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the willing sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, that he knowingly went to the cross. He knowingly stepped into this world knowing what was going to happen, where he would wind up. And he went to the cross, he took our sin upon himself, and that by that sacrifice, we are freed from the burden of sacrificing animals and working hard to try and get our own salvation that we can never get. But through faith in Christ, we are freed from that burden. But we recognize that freedom should work out in our hearts. As we are transformed. We should want to sacrifice for you. We are called to sacrifice for you. Not just a little, not just the scraps of our lives, but every part of our being. So help us, Lord, to be worthy sacrifices, both in quality and in attitude. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The call this morning is to enjoy the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and to actively sacrifice ourselves at the foot of the cross. We're called by Jesus himself to take up our cross daily, but we are assured that when we do, he's right there with us, helping us bear the yoke. If you've not yet invited Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior, that's the starting point. And I would encourage you to do so. As we sing, I would encourage you to come forward so that we can celebrate that decision together. Now, for those of you who are worshiping with us, who've been worshiping for a while, but you're not yet a member of our family here, I would encourage you to make this place your place of ministry and sacrifice, joining with us formally as we go forward into the future. And again, I would invite you to come forward as we sing. For everyone here, you know the invitation, right? It's examine your hearts. Get on your knees and ask God to reveal whether the quality and attitude of your sacrifice truly honor and respect the Lord or is some part of you despising his name.